0: You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to our Sunday Gospel Reflection for the Byzantine Lectionary, uh, together here for the Sunday after exaltation of the Holy Cross. And uh, as we'll we'll find out, our, our theme, of course, is the Holy Cross. Big surprise. So let's jump right into the gospel text, which is given to us today from Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. So get out your Bibles. I think, Father Sebastian, you got a Bible there in front of you, I think. And uh, no Bible? That's too bad. Yeah. Mark chapter 8, verse... Uh, 34, verse 34, and we're going to go through chapter 9, verse 1. The Lord said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For anyone who would save his life will lose it, but anyone who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the good news will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but suffers the loss of his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes with the holy angels in the glory of the Father. And he said to them, Amen, I say to you, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God coming in power. There's sure a lot to pick up here, Father. Why don't we jump right in and gain our context here within the context of the gospel of Mark.
1: Well, in a nutshell, this is the tail end of the Galilean ministry. So Jesus has just given the disciples their final exam. They had a three-year boot camp there, learning how to be, be Jesus. They learned how to minister, how to preach, how to lay hands on. They learned all this stuff for three years. And at the end of three years, he asked them, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who am I? And so they they say, well, you are the Christ, the Son, of living God. So they've accepted what was said at the baptism. They heard the voice, they saw the Spirit descend, they heard the voice, signs that he was the Messiah, the Anointed One. And now they enunciate that, they declare that. So, it's now time to head to Jerusalem, and this is the where our reading picks up, where, as he's going <laughs> to Jerusalem, he immediately begins to prepare them for what's going to happen there, and that is going to be his death and resurrection. And the disciples are wondering, how is this going to all work out? He's, he's the Messiah. He's supposed to remain forever. The, the The kingdom is supposed to be established by him. Now he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. That doesn't make any sense. And what he keeps telling them, though, and something that we often we don't even notice, I think, is he never says he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. He always says he's going to go to Jerusalem die and rise from the dead. And so that's something we need to understand that Jesus is talking about an event which is going to lead to something else, often we stop at that event. And that's where the disciples were stopping. What? You're going to die? What? You're going to die? And they're not listening to what's going, what this is going to result in. His death and resurrection that will bring us to, as St. Paul says, newness of life.
0: You know, Father, when we're looking at this text, it's very easy to apply it to our own life. But that's actually a really bad biblical practice in the sense of jumping ahead of the game and saying, uh, yes, we must take up our cross and we must suffer with Christ and these things. Here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is speaking specifically to, to particular people and he mentions this sinful and adulterous generation. And I think that's a phrase that we've heard so often that we just kind of like, you know, it just kind of passes by us yeah okay and we move on with the text but what is he talking about an adulterous generation a sinful generation i mean he's kind of down on his buddies there it seems (laughs) (laughs) so
1: this is a, a phrase we hear a number of times in the gospel story in the synoptic gospels jesus talks about the present generation this sinful this adulterous this wicked generation and it's very important to key into that, like you said. Uh, the, um, the language should remind us of, Jesus is using that language hoping you were going to hear an echo of something, and that is in the Old Testament. So if you don't mind, maybe we could just turn there for a second To yeah. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I think immediately we were struck with the significance of this. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is Moses's last kind of prophecy about the Israelites. He was with them for 40 years. He had brought them out of Egypt with the purpose of bringing them to Mount Sinai. They were supposed to leave Egypt, go to Mount Sinai, and then go to the Promised Land. That was the basic directions Moses had. Well, we know it didn't work out so well. There were a lot of complications along the way because the people kept causing trouble. And so one of the main problems was of course they refused to go in. When they were finally there at the uh, to enter into the promised land, they didn't want to go. They were afraid. Of course we can think of the golden calf and problem after problem. As a result, it was difficult for Moses, much more difficult than originally uh, it would have it would have been. And so after this 40 year wander in the wilderness, he finally gets them to the Jordan River and in the plains of Moab there, just across the river from Jericho on the other side, he gives them this speech, this big long exhortation called, or as we call it now, the Book of Deuteronomy for various reasons. and at the end of this big long speech and exhortation telling the people, when you get in that promise then you better follow in the ways of the Lord, at the very end of the speech. He prophesies in a hymn in a song a couple of times at the end of the book and one of those hymns is chapter 32 and he says in verse 5 what he's doing is talking about the this whole experience he's had with them and how in many ways this experience he's had with these people and how they've refused to listen to the words of God and have refused to submit themselves to the one that God had sent to them to do them good, to lead them into the promised land. That that, what that had happened will then really in many ways be a type of what will happen to these people when they go into into the promised land with Joshua, who is himself a type for Moses. And they won't listen to Joshua either. The the problems will continue that he faced here with them. They're idolatry. They're rebellious. It's going to happen as soon as they get into the, into the promised land as well. And this is a type then for when Joshua takes over Moses' role. But in this case, we mean the Joshua of the New Testament, Jesus. But the reason why Jesus uses that specific language is because that's the language Moses used to describe the generation that had refused to enter into the promised land and to submit to Moses' authority. That's in chapter 32, verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because of their blemish. They are a perverse and crooked generation. And then at the very end of his hymn, he does the same thing again, verse 20. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. And it goes on and on. So this is language that immediately, if, you, if someone knows the book of Deuteronomy, they hear Jesus referring to the generation that he is dealing with as a perverse generation, as a crooked, and adulterous generation, and actually in the Septuagint, in the Greek, in, in Mark, in Matthew, and also here in Deuteronomy. It's the exact same word. And so there's an echo there, which then comments on the situation we find in the New Testament. Jesus is the new Moses, or the, the one who took over where Moses left off. He's the, the new Joshua. Right? Jesus and Joshua be the same name. And, and just like with Moses, Jesus is leading an Exodus. In fact, Luke really emphasizes this in the transfiguration story. And so Jesus has come to the people. He is, he is leading them, trying to lead them out of Egypt, trying to lead them to Mount Sinai. That is, teach them the ways of God trying to bring them to the promised land, and they are dragging their heels, they're dragging all, digging their heels and refusing to go. And so Jesus will refer to this generation, those who will not follow him, as a wicked, perverse, adulterous generation, reminding them of what happened to them in the wilderness with Moses, and then what will happen to them in the present case. Without Jesus, they will perish, just like that generation did.
0: Of course, the, the imagery for taking up their cross and following him is all the, more, all the stronger in the context of the fact that he is actually going to go and be crucified. And I, we remember those words of St. Thomas, he's, let us go and die with him. And this idea, this willingness to follow Christ and follow in his footsteps for those people and the sacrifice that they gave up by following him by turning to him and walking with him into the kingdom versus those that that refused to do so. But oh, there's something more here. It's, it talks about immediately Jesus kind of switches gears and, and almost becomes uh, what we would normally consider prophetic or whatever, looking toward the, the end times. Okay. But those end times don't look to be all that far off. I mean, they certainly don't look to be 19, you know, Nineteen seventy-five with the Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that. This appears to be that the, the the second coming is going to happen. The end of the world is going to happen within a generation of the apostles. Uh, that's what it appears, and a lot of people struggle with this text because of that. What's the proper understanding in its? What did Jesus really intend here?
1: So the the verse specifically. That we're we're looking at here. This is chapter nine, verse one. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So well, that sounds like on the surface that some there. The, what he's talking about, coming in power, it sounds like the end of the world a lot of times, but it certainly sounds like it's going to happen pretty quickly. There are some standing here who will not taste death until these things happen. Jesus says this in a couple of different places. And what we just heard about the generation and about uh, his words here are all pointing forward to something that a lot of us I think don't think much about, but it was certainly on their radar screen. And that is the coming destruction of Jerusalem. In chapter 13 of Mark's gospel, when Jesus leaves the temple, the disciples point out to him how beautiful it is. And things. And Jesus says, not one stone be left upon another. And they ask him, well, when will these things happen? And he begins to describe to them the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. That event was described to them just shortly after his words here. And that was right around 30 to 33 AD, depending on when you want, how, when you want to date uh, the earthly ministry of Jesus. They were fulfilled, as he says, one gen- within one generation. They were fulfilled in AD 70. So a biblical generation is 40 years. Why did that happen less than 40? Because it shows the mercy of God. He gave them the entire 40-year period for Jerusalem to hear the gospel, to have the, the apostles have a chance to preach the gospel there and form the nation church. And so when the destruction finally comes upon Jerusalem in 40 years— they have had all the time that they needed, and are without excuse. They uh, for the for the uh, rejection of the apostolic preaching, and the persecution of the church, not only of Jesus, but of his bodies, uh, of his body, the members, the 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 apostles and the Christians. And then, as we know, the Romans did roll into town and do just that.
0: You know, maybe just make it a little clearer for our participant, make sure we're all on the same page. You know, I would think of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of, say, God's city, if you will, uh, the, t- the destruction of the temple, as being exactly that, is the destruction of the kingdom of God on earth, not the coming of the kingdom in power. Why is it, what, it, what aspect of the burning of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, is the kingdom of, of God coming in power? What it what was what's that phrase talking about?
1: Well, because the kingdom of God is not the earthly Jerusalem, right? As the epistle of Hebrews points out very clearly, the, the kingdom of God is Jesus. He is the kingdom of God. And he, though it was they though the people who were supposed to be the sons of the kingdom tried to destroy him, tried to to, to kill him, and did, they in the end they were not successful because he was raised from the dead. And so the kingdom of God has been restored on earth in Jesus. He is the kingdom, the place where God and man dwell in common. And we who are members of his body are members of that kingdom. And this is what St. Paul says in letter to the Philippians, in his letter to the Galatians. He says, we are Israel. We are Israel. We are the kingdom of God. How so? Because Jesus is the kingdom of God, and we are members of his
0: body. So, Father, let's shift gears another time now and, and kind of talk about the application of this text to those who are standing there, but then eventually also for us today. You know, he says, look out, the kingdom, the, the power of the kingdom of God is coming. And if you're going to follow me, if you're going to walk into that kingdom, if you're going to participate in it, uh, you're going to have to be willing to take up your cross. And there's all sorts of, of applications we can do with this text. But, I mean, is he really asking his followers to be crucified as a way to die, as a way to enter the kingdom of, of God?
1: Yes, it's it's shocking. But that's that's really, you know, when we hear about the cross today as Christians, it's so sanitized, you know, it's ah, uh, the cross is the source of our salvation. And theologically, yes, we're talking about the event and what happened. But because of that, and because the cross is this common Christian symbol, we kind of forget what it was. It's, it's like the modern, or the equivalent of the modern-day electric chair, or the gas chamber, or the, or the firing line. You know, this is the firing squad. This is, this is capital punishment, the most horrific capital punishment, that the romans could think of in the period and so for jesus to say that he's going to go be crucified is a very traumatic thing for them but then maybe even more traumatic is when he says if you want to come with me you got to be willing to be crucified as well and and that's what happened when they they went to jerusalem with him as soon as they saw what was taking place as soon as they saw the crowds gather around him in the garden of gethsemane there they were gone right, into the bushes. So they were afraid to die with him, but that's because they were not yet ready. Even Peter said, Lord, Lord, I, will, I, I won't abandon you. I will even die with you, he says. This is in John's gospel, and he says, Peter, you're not ready yet. But after the resurrection from the dead, once they have received the power of the Holy Spirit and have been transformed into Jesus. So it's not just a, an intellectual thing for them. Beforehand, they were agreeing, yes, we will, we will do this. I, no, no, maybe we won't. I, and then they all run when it comes down to it. But after the resurrection, through the power of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit is given to the apostles so that they themselves might become the resurrected Lord. They're transformed into Jesus at Pentecost. Then they are ready then we see that boldness of the apostles preaching before the sanhedrin there we see the boldness of the apostles willing to die and they did die for the faith
0: you know this the the way jesus speaks here is uh is it's it's like a it's like a parallelism or a way of like almost when he's speaking with nicodemus about the kingdom of god where he explains what he's saying in the next verse he says Anyone, if anyone wishes to come out here, let him, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, which is rather difficult. Some, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly challenging, okay? And then he goes on to give a little bit of a deeper understanding about what this means to take up your cross and follow me. Uh, for anyone who would save his life will lose it, but anyone who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the good news will save it. And... I love that kind of parallelism because it it helps us understand what Jesus is doing on the cross, that he is uh, living a life of self-giving love. As we know from the, the epistle to John, God is love. And in fact, Jesus says no greater love has any man than to give his life for his friend. This is the mystery which God has lived from all eternity, pouring out his life from the father into the son and the Holy spirit, this life of self-giving love. And, and, what Jesus does for us on earth is is incarnate that love, incarnate that reality and and we see that most beautifully uh, displayed for us on the cross in which he he, he displays the, the, the breadth and the depth of his love for us, uh, the the depth and the breadth of his, the giving of his own life. but it's interesting in that giving of his life, he says, we find true life in the, and the reason for that is. Obviously, because we are made in the image and likeness of God. We are called to live God's life, and that that life of the Lord is always this self-giving life. It's in this action of self-gift that we find our true identity and ultimately are saved. We ultimately find our salvation in this because when we live God's life, God's life is eternal life. And death has no more dominion over Jesus. Death has no more dominion over those who live God's life because eternal life cannot end. And so we receive that gift of life through our holy baptism. And I, I, want, I just wanted to focus for a minute on that because it's a question of how we're going to live our life. And if we, figure, if we figure that business out, how we're going about living our life, and we make a decision about how we're going to live our life, then how we live that life will lead to how we will live for all eternity. Uh, I want to share with you uh, just a quotation I came across, a couple of quotations I came across that I thought might be helpful for us today. One of the fathers says, One who is fixed to the cross of Christ is one who, in imitation of his footsteps, is not ensnared by any worldly desire. Living to God, he appears dead to the world your cross another one the father says your cross means your own, your own anxieties and sufferings in your own body what does this mean to take up your a cross i like this is beautiful it means he will bear with whatever is troublesome and in this very act he will be following me when he has begun to follow me according to my teachings and precepts he will find many people contradicting him and standing in his way many who do not only deride but even persecute him Moreover, this is true not only of pagans who are outside the church, but also those who seem to be in it visibly, but are outside of it because of the perversity of their deeds. Although these glory in merely the title of Christian, they continually persecute faithful Christians. Such belongs to the members of the church in the same way that bad blood is in the body. Therefore, if you wish to follow Christ, do not delay in carrying his cross Tolerate sinners, but do not yield to them. Do not let the false happiness of the wicked corrupt you. While there is much in this world to love, it is best loved in relation to the one who made it. The world is beautiful, but much fairer is the one who fashioned it. The world is glorious, but more, more delightful is the one who that, that established the world, and so forth. And he begins to talk here about earthly possessions and and the whole point is how are we going to live in relationship to the things of this world and in our relationship to God are we willing to allow our own priorities to be the driving force of our life or the priorities of God what the world says is most important or what the lord places in our life is most important and he offers us his invitation you know let's be honest jesus was murdered on the cross but the question is not so much what they did to him but what he did with what they did to him that he lived his life of self-giving love through all of that and that's what each one of us is called to and now we're called to that very intimately as members as you said as members of the kingdom as members of the body to choose willingly to live the life which God has lived from all eternity. Father, let's move on to Galatians, to our epistle, in chapter 2 of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians 2, verse 16. I think that's in the New Testament. Is that right, Father, Galatians? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Brethren, we know man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Hence, we also believe in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no man it will be justified. But if while we are seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves are found to be sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? By no means. For if I rebuild the things I destroyed, I make myself a sinner. For through the law, I have died to the law that I might live for God. With Christ, I am nailed to the cross. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live within the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. As usual, Father, we need to take a look at this 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 context uh, after learning a little bit about the proper context to be challenged because we have to remember that while this text is oftentimes used by our Protestant brothers and sisters to, to beat us over the head with, with biblical texts or biblical scriptures regarding works versus faith and so forth like that, to remember that St. Paul was not talking to, to Lutherans or Protestants or anything. So what, uh, what, who was he talking to? Who are the Galatians? And why is he using this language about works of the law versus faith?
1: So the epistle to the Galatians is one of the most difficult epistles of Paul, I think, to understand if, if we don't follow sound rules of interpretation. If we do follow the sound rules, then it tends to make a lot of sense, and it really blossoms a beautiful epistle. Without that, it's, it's a little strange. Right off the bat, why is Paul so mad? If you read the beginning of his epistle, he is really irritated. In fact, it's this epistle on the 2 Corinthians that people usually think, read and say, oh, wow, Paul was just a really difficult guy. No, it's, it's in two epistles where he's fairly irritated, and it's the context of those two epistles that tell us why he's irritated. In the Galatians, he's really, really worked up here because, and this is also why the epistle is difficult for us, is because these Christians, out of all the Pauline Christians, should know better. They should know better than the errors they have fallen into. These are the churches Paul founded in the very beginning on his first journey, when he had left Antioch with Barnabas, and he went to Asia Minor. He founded these churches. This is Iconium and Lystra, Derbe, those churches in that region. Antioch of Pisidia, not the Antioch of of Syria. Those churches up in that central area of modern-day Turkey, these are the churches that most scholars agree are the churches of Galatia. Now, these churches, while founded initially by from little synagogues in these cities, very quickly, because this is Gentile land, were inundated with converts from the Gentiles who were not circumcised and not keeping kosher. When Paul came back from his first journey, he came back to Antioch in Syria. And there he found Christians who had arrived in his absence from Jerusalem, teaching the church in Antioch that was, for the most part, Gentile at this point, that they need to be circumcised to keep kosher. They really want to be saved. And so Paul argued with them, and Paul and Barnabas went back down to Jerusalem, and they called a council, the church called a council, and they discussed these things. And after a debate and conversation about the whole thing, the apostles all agreed, especially after James, the bishop there, had given some clarifications on some issues, that the Gentiles who come into the church, who are baptized into Jesus, have no need of being circumcised and keeping kosher. Those are the works of the law, the works of the Torah, by which you will not be saved. If, if you're saved by the works of the Torah, circumcision and kosher laws, there was no point in Jesus coming. There's no point in your baptism then. So, while well, you'd think that would result, resolve the matter. Well, Paul took a letter, a copy of that a, a declaration from the apostles in Jerusalem back to Antioch with him and read it to them. Oh, okay. Then from Antioch, he went up to Asia Minor and delivered that letter, copies of the letter, this is all recorded in Acts 16, to those churches in Galatia. And there was peace, it says. Hmm, okay, so everything's good. Then on Paul's third journey, he goes through there, and he finds that Jerusalem, uh, the, the false apostles, possibly those very same ones that ended up in Antioch, who were probably no longer welcome in Jerusalem, have made their way into his churches in Galatia, and have now been teaching these churches that are his churches, that he founded, and they delivered the declaration of the council on this issue, are now circumcising and keeping kosher, eating gefilte fish and wearing the yarmulke. These, they have become full Judaizers. And he's really irritated. So when he gets to Ephesus, he writes a letter back to them. That's the letter to the Galatians in which he convinces them over and over this epistle that it is due to your baptism that you are saved, not due to the works of the Torah, because it's in your baptism, they says in chapter 3, verse 27, that you have put on Christ like a garment. You have become a member of his body. It is in your baptism that you have, as he says elsewhere, like in Romans chapter 6, been, been buried with Christ, been crucified with him, died with him, and been raised from the dead. There is no need of circumcision and kosher laws. And that's what he talks about here, about being crucified and with Christ and all of that. It's sacramental language. And any theology that is not sacramental is not apostolic theology. The uh, juridical oh, theology that was developed by Luther and Calvin is is certainly not authentic apostolic theology, but that's. For
0: I don't know, Father. You know this. Uh, here's the thing. This it sounds like St. Paul and Luther are getting along here. I mean, you're talking about sacraments. You're talking about doing stuff, getting baptized. You know, doing doing all this business that's uh, that the, that the apostolic churches are into doing, uh, the sacramental life of the church. It sounds like doing a bunch of works so as to gain favor with God. But St. Paul here seems to take Luther's side. He says, none of that stuff's important. <laughs> okay? Only faith. Just believe, and you're going to be saved by the blood of the Lamb. That's what it sounds like to me. I'm kidding. You're right. However, that last part. Uh,
1: okay. So you'll be saved by the blood of the Lamb. You're saved by Jesus. But how are you saved, right? The problem where, where Luther gets off on our own track here is that he's reading this epistle without thinking about who is the author, who is the intended audience, and what is the purpose of writing. If we go back to Acts chapters 10 through 15, and we read that carefully, we find that this is the heresy that, that was plaguing Paul's churches there. And so once we understand the Judaizer heresy, that it is not a contrast between what you believe versus what you do. That's Augustine versus Pelagius, which is why Luther fell in so Luther was an Augustinian monk. He read Galatians and Romans through the lens of the Augustine-Pelagian debates about what you believe versus what you do kind of things. But that is not, there were no Pelagians nor Augustinians running around in Galatia at the time. So we have to go back to the original context. What was Paul dealing with? He was dealing with Judaizers. And Judaizer, the Judaizer heresy is very clear. Any theological dictionary or biblical will explain. The Judaizer heresy was this: that beyond baptism, you needed to be circumcised and keep kosher. It was not a denial of the need for baptism, a denial of the need for the sacraments, a denial of the of the need for Jesus. It was it was believing you you had to have all of that, plus you had to keep the old law, circumcision and kosher laws. And that's why and this is. This is where people get off on this text here. They don't read it carefully. He says, a man is not saved by the works of the Torah, the works of the law. Now, you say, well, those are two different words, aren't they? Well, in English. But nomos in Greek is the word law is the Old Testament Greek translation of the Hebrew word Torah. So when we hear law in the New Testament, the point of epistles, being saved by the law or the law of Moses. It's the Torah, the Torah, the Torah. And it is the Torah that was revealed by Moses and given to the Mount Sinai that Paul says will not save you in the end. The only one that can save you is Jesus because he is the Torah incarnate. And if you are incarnated into his flesh through baptism, through having received his body and blood with chrismation, all of these things make you a member of the body of Christ and you are therefore in Jesus saved.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean you and I accept that. Okay, I'll grant you that. But this we're looking here at Galatians chapter two, and I'm a you know, I'm reading this. it says, look, you just need faith. That means you don't have to do anything. Just have faith. It doesn't talk about baptism. In Galatians chapter two, verse 16 through 21. I'm looking here, it doesn't say nothing about baptism, it doesn't say anything about confession, nothing about the sacramental system. It just says faith. Uh, it sounds, he sounds Lutheran.
1: He sounds Lutheran if we have Lutheran ears. That's the problem. So here's the problem. Galatians is the cliff notes, or at least is like the cliff notes to the epistle to the Romans. Paul knew this community well. He founded them. He delivered to them the council declaration on this very issue. If there is any Christian in the first century who was well-schooled, on the topic of the Judaizer heresy and its errors, it was the Galatians. And just like when you and I send an email back and forth, a lot of times I send an email to you, it's a one-liner. You send an email to me, it's a one or 2 line, A phone call, very short, very quick, because we know each other well and we know what we're thinking just with one little word. So Paul, in the letter of the Galatians, says something like, I was nailed to the cross, I was crucified with Christ, he is, he's saying that to remind them of his teaching on that subject, but he doesn't give the full teaching because they all know this stuff, okay? So he's reminding them of these things. However, if we go to the epistle to the Romans, thank God we have that epistle, because the epistle to the Romans was written to a community that had never met Paul and had never heard his preaching. And so what Paul has to say in the letter to the Galatians on the Judaizer heresy, in very short you know bits here and there to the romans he has to say in great detail because they don't they've never been catechized by him so where paul will say for example that we are saved like abraham in galatians that's one line in galatians thus abraham was saved or thus abraham believed in romans it's an entire chapter it's romans chapter four what is one line in Galatians is a whole chapter in Romans because he could not assume common knowledge between him and that audience. And so that's why the early church put the letter to the Romans on the front of the Pauline epistles. Not because it was written first, it was one of his latter epistles. It was because he had to explain himself in such detail to a community that didn't really know him. If you read Romans carefully and thoroughly first, and then come into Galatians or the other epistles, you are equipped, almost like a Galatian Christian who has been studied under Paul, to now read the rest of the Pauline epistles. And so if someone were to be confused about this, they have to go over and look at Romans to find where Paul talks about being crucified, where he talks about dying with Christ. This is in Romans chapter 6. All of you have been baptized to Christ, have died with him, been buried with him, raised with him in the newness of life. As he says to Colossians in chapter 2, he says, in your baptism, you have been circumcised with Christ. It's in your baptism. So it's by looking at all the Pauline epistles, especially Romans at the beginning, that we can begin to get a sense of the kind of language that Paul used when he talked about the sacraments. Galatians 3.27, this very epistle, all of you who have been baptized into Christ have been have put on Christ. It's there. It's just we have to take off the Lutheran glasses and start looking more carefully with the apostolic glasses.
0: You know, it's, it's important because it, uh, it brings us back, well, it's important because it brings us back to baptism. And while those quotations I read from the church fathers are very helpful in a moral application of our baptismal gift, the fact is that the life of the Christian as a life of self-giving love is one which begins on the day of our baptism. And the word bapti- baptized in Greek, baptizing, means be plunged into Jesus. We're plunged into God's way of life on, in baptism, which is why the nature of baptism is, is, is death and new life, is, is finding a life through self-giving love that I died to myself, that I might live for another. It is into this reality of God is love that we are baptized on the day of our baptism. And we receive this newness of life, which has begun on the day of our baptism and now continues the rest of our life. But, and maybe we can conclude with this, is that there's a big but. Yes, it begins on the day of our baptism, but I must choose in my life to live that reality out. As I was reading here, you know, the cross cannot remain on us like a, like a badge or something I put around my neck and, and look at look at I'm a Christian. No, what St. Paul's is saying is that, that life, that life must be something interior to you. It must be a reality that is lived out every day of your life. I've been thinking recently about because of this feast of the Holy Cross, how often we make the sign of the cross, how often we make the sign of the cross. If we pray regularly and we pray the prayers of the church regularly we're constantly making the sign of the cross almost engraving the cross in our life is that engraving of the cross in our life which which conforms us over time begun on the day of our baptism and the rest of our life is, this, is conformity to god's way of life to 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 god who is love who in giving of ourselves to others, who dying to ourselves, who taking up our cross, pour out our life for our brothers and sisters, that we find true life and authentic happiness. And I, as I've said before, this is not by accident. It's because we are created in the image and likeness of God. Where we are going to find happiness in this life, fulfillment in this life, is not something that we choose. Um, but often we go about our life as though it is something we choose. I want that car and I want that house and I'm going to get this, tr- this degree at school and I'm going to do these things to make my life for me the way I want it to be. But we can see by the consumerism of our society, by American consumerism, there is not, nothing you get is ever going to satisfy us because we're, ultimately we're not made to be satisfied by these things. We, all, only are we going to find true life an authentic happiness, an authentic fulfillment in the cross of Jesus Christ because that cross represents the truth of who God is, that in giving of himself fully, he reveals the life he has lived from all eternity. Let us pray that during this time of the Feast of the Holy Cross, we can conform our lives, not to our way of life, but to his way of life. And in being conformed to his way of life, we will find our true life. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.